chapter 35 carries right on with that idea. Our wilderness and arid land, which has been under a covenant curse, shall be jubilant. The desert shall rejoice and it blossoms like the crocus. So there is a reversal of covenant curses for the righteous in what's formerly the wilderness. The land blossoms like the crocus. The King James Version has the rose, but modern translations don't buy that anymore. As we know more about the Hebrew language, we realize that the crocus is the first flower of spring. And it kind of pops up real bright and early, and just suddenly overnight, there it is in full bloom. And that is symbolic of the Lord's people blossoming in that latter-day scenario. Suddenly overnight, they become a blessed and covenant people, and their curses are reversed. They themselves are like the desert that blossoms. Their curses are reversed. Joyously it shall break out in flower, singing with delight. Well, how does the desert sing? Well, the birds out there sing, right? And the wind sings in the trees. It shall be endowed with the glory of Lebanon, which was the forested area in the north of Israel, but also the glory of the promised land in general. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, those very places that the king of Assyria desolated, in one sense, their glory is given to the desert. There will be a new Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon, where they will be transformed into a paradisical state. The glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God they shall see there. The glory of the Lord signifies His presence. The splendor of our God, when His presence is there, everything is different, everything is brighter. We see this paradisical state also in other places, as in chapter 51, verse 3, which says, The Lord is comforting Zion, bringing solace to all her ruins. He's making her wilderness like Eden, her desert as the garden of the Lord. Joyful rejoicing takes place there, thanksgiving with the voice of song. So when the Lord comes to the earth, then the earth is transformed to a paradisical state, and his people with it. Verse 3, strengthen the hands grown feeble, steady the failing knees. Because the time was so hard, that time of judgment at the end of the world was so difficult, even the strongest, most valiant souls may have had their doubts. Say to those with fearful hearts, take courage, be unafraid. See, your God is coming to avenge and to reward. God himself will come and deliver you. Hang on, wait it out, keep praying for deliverance. Eventually he will come. Your hands may be growing feeble, your knees may be failing, your hearts may be fearful, but hang in there, endure to the end. God's coming is twofold, to avenge and to reward. Vengeance upon the wicked and to reward the righteous. Destruction upon the wicked, deliverance of the righteous. God himself will come and deliver you. As I said, he's the only one who can save. Even the other saviors on lesser levels of the spiritual ladder depend on him, on God, for deliverance. It also implies that there are those who are ministering to others who are encouraging them, right? Those little saviors. They're strengthening them. They're speaking to them and say, take courage, be unafraid. Which means that there is a ministering category of the Lord's people who are those saviors and those servants of God at that time. Verse 5, Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. That's the reversal of circumstances when those who are impaired in some way or ill are healed. 
but also the spiritual condition that underlies everything, that through repentance their eyes are opened and their ears unstopped. By spiritual conversion, it precedes this condition, this physical condition. Then shall the lame leap like deer, and the tongue of the dumb shout for joy. A whole reversal of circumstances for everybody. A reversal of covenant curses. The iniquities of the fathers upon the heads of the children is now done away. People are forgiven their iniquity, and they repent, and are faithful to that degree, through that time, past the test. God comes through wonderfully in all areas of life. Water shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams flow in the desert. The land of mirages shall become one of lakes, a thirsty place, springs of water. Just imagine the Nevada desert there in that paradisical condition. In the haunt of howling creatures shall marshes break out, in the reserve shall come rushes and reeds. Like I said in chapter 34, things turn into haunts of howling creatures and became desert for the wicked. In this case, for the righteous, that situation is reversed. I also tend to think that the Native American inhabitants of this land who were given those reservations, you know, those desolate and dry areas, they're going to be better off than anyone else at that time because those are the very areas that are going to blossom, like the crocus. There shall be highways and roads which shall be called the way of holiness, for they shall be for such as are holy. Only the holy traverse them because... It is the way of return. It is the way of the returning exiles to Zion. It is the exodus. And only the holy ones and the valiant ones are the ones who can participate in that exodus. And there will be roads of return from the four directions of the earth, as Isaiah says in other places. The unclean shall not traverse them. On them shall no reprobates wander. Right now on our highways we have reprobates wandering around, traversing asking for rides, right? It's a cursed situation for them and for society in general. Those roads will not be like that. This is the way of holiness. No lion shall be encountered there, nor shall wild beasts intrude, but the redeemed shall walk them. The ransomed of the Lord shall return. They shall come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy. In the Exodus, in that pilgrimage to Zion, they will walk and sing. And they'll not be molested by wild beasts, which is a covenant curse. It'll be a peaceful return march to Zion at the bidding of the Lord's servant who serves as an ensign and rallies them there, rallies them to repent and to renew their covenantal allegiance with the Lord. The redeemed here and the ransomed are in parallel. And if you do a word study of the word redeem in the book of Isaiah, you see that the Lord is the redeemer of his people and redeems them in a spiritual sense. And the servant redeems them or ransoms them in a temporal sense. They're synonymous terms, but one alludes more to spiritual deliverance and the other to temporal deliverance. Remember chapter 1, verse 27, which says, Zion shall be ransomed by justice, those of her who repent by righteousness. The ransoming is done by righteousness by the Lord's servant, who instills this righteousness in the Lord's people so that they can qualify for deliverance in the Exodus. The redeemed shall walk them. The ransom of the Lord shall return. In Isaiah, they return from the four directions of the earth, from all countries wherever they are scattered. 
They shall come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy. Now joy and singing are always part of the Lord's deliverance in this covenant people and his redemption in that day. But the crowning of their heads also has a special connotation. In the book of Isaiah, we saw the fading reeds on the heads of the opulent, the crowns of glory upon the heads of the drunkards of Ephraim. That's the negative aspect. In Isaiah, later on in the book, we see that the elect are also crowned with diadems and crowns, implying royal accession. That means that they're crowned as kings among his people. And they're also ordained as priests. Eventually we see that they become kings and priests among the Lord's people. These elect do. Remember that those who participate in the Exodus are not all of the Lord's people, they're only the elect, only the holy and valiant ones. There's another category that also survives the destruction over whom they rule, to whom they minister. They were not wicked, the wicked were destroyed, but they're not righteous enough to participate in the Exodus. And they survive in other ways, without the Lord's direct intervention. They shall have one joy and gladness when sorrow and sighing flee away. Meaning that there was sorrow and sighing for a time, perhaps for quite a time. And that whole time when they waited it out, when it says, We have waited for thee, be our strength of arm from morning to morning, our salvation in troubled times. We had to wait a long time. We were in a state of sorrow and sighing. We ate the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction for some time. But we passed the test. Eventually, the Lord saved us in this exodus. And joy and gladness is a reversal of those ideas of the sorrow and the sighing. Again, alluding to the curse reversal or the reversal of circumstances that the Lord's people experience in that day.